0: Welcome to Coffee with Condeva, a series of thought-provoking conversations about complex drug delivery. Today we will be talking with Dr. John Vasilakis about the role of microneedles in the delivery of cancer vaccines. Hello, I'm your host, John Price, and I've got John Vasilakis with me here today. He is an immunologist with training with over 25 years of experience in the pharmaceutical and drug delivery business, spending much of his time working on the development of cancer drugs and adjuvants, as well as other chronic viral diseases. He is currently the Business Development Manager for Microneedle Transdermal Systems here at Condeva Drug Delivery. So, John, What interested you about immunology that made you want to pursue it as a career?
1: John, I was a, um, uh, as an undergraduate student, I took immunology and it was interesting. But to be honest with you, I really didn't know, um, I didn't know what type of a career one could have with it. And so after I finished undergrad, I, I got a master's degree in microbiology and immunology. Simply because I was interested in it and then I was fortunate enough to get a job at a pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly, where I worked for almost three years. That's when it really became clear to me what I wanted to do with my career and then got a PhD at the University of Cincinnati. And then from there I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for greater than 25 years.
0: So this ties in nicely with the next point from the article, which appears in On Drug Delivery. Uh, We'll have a link to it in the description for this episode. In the article, you start by describing the prominence of checkpoint inhibitors. What are these checkpoint inhibitors and how do they work?
1: Checkpoint inhibitors are either monoclonal antibodies or they're small molecules that block specific receptors that are on immune cells. And the best way to describe checkpoint inhibitors and then checkpoint blockade in general is to sort of think of an analogy. So a car has a brake and an accelerator. In order to make the car go forward, you push on the accelerator and stop it. You, you push on the brake. So the immune system is built in a similar manner. To make the immune system go, you activate it. and, And the immune system then turns off or slows down by applying a brake and this is a natural normal process that prevents an overactivation of the immune system which can actually cause harm to us so it's normal to turn off the immune system so what happens in cancer is tumor cells basically turn off the T cell response or the immune response they apply the brake to the immune system all the time and turn it off and what checkpoint blockade therapy does is it prevents the tumor cells from turning off the immune system. So in other words, it blocks the breaking ability of the tumor cells so that the immune system has the opportunity to become activated and to continue to be activated to destroy the tumor.
0: So when it comes to cancer, is there something that's masking itself from from our immune system normally?
1: So yeah, yes, definitely. Um, so tumor in general, tumors are They're, first of all, they're self, they're us, they're not a virus, they're not a bacteria. Our immune system doesn't naturally recognize tumors the way they they recognize the way the immune system recognizes bacteria and viruses. So what tumors do is they have built in actually a number of immunosuppressive mechanisms that turn down the immune system. And one of those is checkpoint blockade, which we just talked about. Um, and then there are other, there are other mechanisms as well. There are suppressor factors that are secreted by tumors that also the immune system from becoming activated and, and actually a whole slew of other factors that in general cause the immune response to be very ineffective against tumors.
0: So it's like putting a wedge under your brake pedal in your car. You're not applying the gas to the immune system. These inhibitors are saying, I'm going to take the brake option away from you. So it allows your immune system to keep going normally. Is that an apt description? So, uh,
1: yes, in part. So th- with, with cancer, the, the tumors themselves, the cancer environment itself is immune suppressive. All right. And checkpoint blockade therapies are a critical mechanism in order to, to turn off the immune system. So in, in general your immune system becomes activated and it turns off. So it's normal under normal circumstances, uh, checkpoint inhibitors play a healthy role in, in an immune response. However, in the case of cancer, it's, it turns into an unhealthy response because essentially what happens as soon as the immune system begins to respond against the cancer, the cancer vigorously defends itself by turning the immune system off. So in essence, what checkpoint blockade therapies do is they prevent the tumor from down regulating the immune response and therefore allowing the immune response to persist and destroy the tumor.
0: There seems to be a lot of activity going on in the checkpoint inhibitor space. What are some of the up-and-coming trends in cancer immune therapy?
1: Over the past five years, it's become certainly apparent that uh, it's actually been been apparent for even a longer period of time, but the, the big effort within the past five years really has been combination therapy, trying to identify the best combinations that work against cancer, because it's pretty clear that, under most circumstances, single therapy is not effective. So checkpoint blockade therapy has become the cornerstone. And if you think about it, you have checkpoint blockade therapy, and then and there's a whole slew of other therapies, whether they're thymidine kinase inhibitors, uh, chemotherapeutics, anti, uh, angiogenic molecules, vaccines, et cetera. All of those are being evaluated in combination really with checkpoint blockade therapies in the middle. So I would say in terms of up and coming trends, it's trying to identify really which combinations will work the best. Certainly there's a huge effort in we'll call a personalized therapy where when an individual becomes diagnosed with a particular type of cancer, then what their biomarkers are evaluated in the patient for the purpose of identifying, in part, the best therapies that will work. So we're trying to look at the the tumor, basically the biological fingerprint of the tumor, to help us predict which therapies will work best. So I think that's another big trend that's occurring. And, you know, there's certainly, we're we're trying to identify new and improved checkpoint blockade therapies. There's a lot of effort in vaccines, vaccine adjuvants, et cetera.
0: So with combination cancer therapies, the checkpoint inhibitors are going in, trying to remove the breaks from working within our immune system, and then a second dose is given of various cancer vaccines that try to accelerate or stimulate the immune system to actually go after and then attack this cancer. Is that what we're trying to do with these combination therapies?
1: Yeah, I think that's 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 definitely a reasonable example uh, when you're talking about vaccines you know, and maybe it's worth at least mentioning here that checkpoint blockade therapy is very effective against certain types of cancers. And in general, what you could do is you could look at tumors and if they are populated with a large number of immune cells, for instance, and particularly if they're, if they're activated immune cells then we would refer to those as hot tumors. And that's really where checkpoint blockade therapies in general, have shown to be effective for cold tumors. And these are tumors that lack immune cells. Here's where checkpoint blockade therapy hasn't been very effective. And this is really, John, is where we start thinking about, well, how can we increase the number of tumor-specific T cells? And, and really, logically, this is where vaccination comes into play.
0: Uh, so, so as you were just discussing, um, you, you wrote about some tumors being hot some cold what what makes some tumors hot and some cold and and what exactly is that referring to
1: The, the simplest way to to look at to define hot and cold tumors is a hot tumor is a tumor that contains T cells or immune cells and a cold tumor lacks immune cells now it's not it's not that simplistic but I think it's probably the easiest way to explain it and if you think about it the way checkpoint blockade therapies work is the therapy is administered into the patient. And you can imagine that within these tumors you have, you have T cells. They have the ability to recognize and destroy the tumor, but they simply don't. They've been shut off, if you will. The brake's been applied to them. And this is where the checkpoint blockade therapies become effective. They, they remove that break and allow for those tumors to, to, um, to be destroyed by the T cells. So a hot tumor is a tumor that contains, functional immune cells within the tumor, and a cold tumor uh, lacks an immune profile, a functional immune profile.
0: Does a tumor evolve from hot to cold, or are some tumors always hot and some are always cold? Do they evolve throughout their time in the body? Are they hotter when they're forming, and then as they grow, they become colder, or is it generally a static state of cold or hot, or is it a combination of both?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, John, uh, and, and actually pretty difficult one to answer. But in general, um, as tumors, as a tumor enlarges, it becomes more immunosuppressive. I mean, just, it's a general, it's a generalization. It's definitely not always, always the case. But, uh, if you, if you had to put a timeline on cold to hot on, on tumors, the longer the tumor persists, and the larger that it becomes, the colder it becomes within the host. But in general, I would say that it's probably, I'll say it's a difficult to answer question.
0: So does this help explain the importance of delivery of the cancer vaccines early in a patient's diagnosis?
1: So we've known, we've actually known for some time that cancer therapy, whether it's immunotherapy or not, is more effective when tumor burden is low. So the larger the the tumor, the less likely the traditional therapeutics become effective. So, in general, I would say that that's the case. That's always been the case.
0: Generally, it sounds like you're a little more encouraged now than you were 10 years ago about the state of the science here. Is is that accurate?
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, I think, so, if you think about cancer therapy for decades, I mean, we, we were hoping to put, to bring therapeutics to the table that would allow for patients just to live an additional 6 months really what happened in 20 between 20, 2005 and 2010 we'll say that time frame there was um, there's this explosion in in immunotherapy and really a great understanding in checkpoint blockade and its role so we've known for some time that we're able to induce immune responses to cancer. We've been able to do that through vaccination. The problem is is you'd get a response and then the response would be turned off. So what happened, you know, around 2010, we started to have checkpoint blockade therapies, which were being developed and evaluated in the clinic. And what we saw, what we saw, which is really encouraging is not only was the tumor and the cancer either reduced or held under control, but that the patient was living for a long period of time. So essentially these therapies became what we call, they allowed for durable responses. People were living longer.
0: Talk to me about the potential advantage of delivering a vaccine intradermally.
1: Sure. The skin is is a natural, it's an immune organ, if you will. It's loaded with immune cells, particularly a certain type of immune cell called a dendritic cell or dendritic cells. There's different types. And the, these dendritic cells, their function is to pick up relevant antigens or a substance that you want to induce an immune response to. They then take that and deliver it to T cells and the lymph nodes, and then you get this activation of an immune response. And so I think probably a good way to think of it is it's about plumbing, basic plumbing. If, if a vaccine is administered into the muscle, muscle's not a normal location where an immune response occurs. There isn't this, this natural migration of, of immune cells that go into the lymph nodes where you initiate an immune response. The skin, however, is set up. It's basically built for when antigens, when bacteria, when viruses, et cetera, get into that site, they're picked up by antigen presenting cells, dendritic cells. They then migrate into the draining lymph nodes and then you induce an immune response. So it's a more natural way to actually induce the immune response.
0: You've also written that there are other organs other than the the skin, like the spleen or other lymph nodes. Why are we delivering to the skin versus directly into the spleen or these lymph nodes? Is it just easier?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that's probably the best answer. Uh, You know, if you think about to deliver to the spleen and the lymph node would require special techniques. and and likely an interventional radiologist in order to do it. So you need, you'll need a skilled individual and you'll need specialized equipment to do that. All right. And I would say the lymph nodes, I could understand administration in lymph nodes. The the one thing I would say about the spleen, the spleen is definitely an immune organ. It's a B cell rich organ. And if I had a preference, I'd go into, into the draining lymph node, into the tumor draining lymph node for vaccination rather than into the spleen. But in either case, it just, it makes more sense, it's easier to actually go into the skin.
0: What are some of the traditional challenges to intradermal delivery?
1: Today, if to, to do an intradermal injection does require some training and some skill, certainly. And often, even the skilled individuals, it's estimated that about a third of the time, they're not completely accurate in delivering into the dermis. So what happens is they'll, they'll inject some of it subcutaneously, some of the solution subcutaneously. I think another problem is also volume. So the typical techniques that are used today or tools that are used today allow for administration of about 50 to 100 microliters. For your typical vaccine solutions, they're generally a half a mil to a mil in solution.
0: As a potential solution for consistent intradermal delivery, can you describe what this device is and a little bit of how it works?
1: So a number of companies, Condeva included, are trying to uh, produce devices that will allow for accurate and consistent delivery of antigens or solutions into the, into the skin. And Kandeva has developed, we have two devices, one's called a solid microneedle or SMTS and the other is a hollow microneedle, HMTS device that allows for the administration of antigens into the skin. Now, the solid device, essentially is a non aqueous system where the vaccine formulation is dried onto the microneedle and then that microneedle is inserted into the skin and, and one gets delivery of the antigen in the skin and the hollow it's a solution that's administered into the skin, just like you would administer a solution with a, with a stator needle and syringe.
0: I'm trying to picture the device. So it's delivering a fluid similar to a traditional needle and syringe, but at a more consistent penetration depth. Are there other advantages to these hollow microneedle systems or HMTS um, beyond consistent penetration levels? It sounds like the cancer vaccines are often delivered in larger volumes. Is there something that the Condeva HMTS device does differently to traditional delivery methods?
1: Some of the key advantages. Of the uh, of Kendeva's hollow microneedle device is that it can deliver solutions that are half a mil up to two mils, and this is really a big differentiator in comparison to other devices that are out there because most of the vaccines, as we had mentioned, they're typically in the half a mil to one mil range. So, there's this in that volume, other devices simply don't allow for that large volume delivery into the skin. And I think another key aspect is the consistent delivery within the dermis of the skin. So the dermis is a layer of the skin that contains large number of relevant immune cells, especially dendritic cells. So you're actually, you are directly putting your vaccine in a location that has the appropriate immune cells to pick up your vaccine and take it to the T cells in order to induce an immune response.
0: That's really interesting. What kind of clinical testing has happened with both the HMTS and SMTS devices? Are they currently being used in any active trials?
1: Actually, the solid microneedle device is currently in phase 3 clinical testing. Kindeva is working with Radius Health. Radius Health is the sponsor of the program. The device is designed to deliver a peptide for osteoporosis. And like I said, that's in, currently in phase three. And the hollow microneedles are, have been evaluated in cancer patients. There are two organizations, both Mayo Clinic and Sensei Biotherapeutics that are using Candeva's hollow microneedle device in order to administer their vaccines. Mayo Clinic is administering a dendritic cell vaccine for glioblastoma patients, and as well as ovarian cancer patients and Sensei Biotherapeutics has administered into head and neck cancer patients a vaccine which consists of essentially a recombinant virus that encodes the relevant cancer antigens.
0: I've read some articles about microneedles that dissolve in the skin. Is this what we're talking about here, where the needles actually just go away after the drug is delivered, or is this something different?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, this is something different. These devices are designed... To administer the drug and then the needles after administration, they are removed and discarded. So this is not a dissolvable microneedle type device. The one thing to note is, so even when you think about the manufacture of vaccines for the dissolvable microneedle technology, what one would need to do is they would need to formulate the vaccine and then incorporate it into the microneedles uh, during the manufacturing process the hollow microneedle device. All right. One of the advantages I think with the hollow microneedle device over a dissolvable microneedle is that the, you can, one could manufacture the vaccine at an independent site. Say for instance, a biopharmaceutical company can manufacture its vaccine. Whereas Candeva will manufacture the, the device. So when it comes time to administer into the patient, then the vaccine formulation, is loaded into, the, into a cartridge that fits within the injector of the hollow microneedle, and then it is applied to the patient's body and administered into the skin.
0: What makes hollow microneedles well-suited to the delivery of cancer vaccines specifically?
1: A couple things do. I think, first of all, cancer vaccines, we're really trying to induce a strong T-cell response in general. And so what we want to do is we want to increase the probability of getting the best response that we can. It seems like a pretty good idea to administer into an area of the body that can increase the probability for giving you the best response. So the skin does make sense for that. The other reason is that the microneedles, the tips of the microneedles are 80 microns in diameter. And the part that's important here is one can administer cells they can administer viral particles. Um, as well as standard protein-adjuvanted vaccines. And I think a lot of the cancer vaccines that are being developed today are cellular in nature and then in viruses in nature. So I, the technology fits.
0: John, I really appreciate your time today and for enlightening us about cancer vaccines, checkpoint inhibitors, and combination therapies. I look forward to hearing from you again as the current trials progress. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Condeva, a series of thought-provoking conversations about complex drug delivery. Join us next time as we talk with Ben Myatt about novel investigations of the next generation of PMDI propellants.